0: is finding their seat, just a reminder on the announcements, first of all a reminder that the picnic is scheduled for April the 1st, uh, or April the 7th rather, and that will be out at Orlando's, there's sign up sheets out here, and um, Orlando's is, if you haven't been there before, that's out towards past Brookshire, you get off at Brookshire and then go towards Pattison, driving through Brookshire. There'll be maps and information out in the fellowship hall. Also, uh, the March of Remembrance is a memorial walk that is in remembrance of those uh, murdered in the Holocaust. And its uh, significance is to uh, remember what happened and to take a stand against anti-Semitism and to stand with those in the Jewish community. So it will be. Um, it begins at twelve forty-five. I haven't seen where it will begin yet, but it will end at Temple Emmanuel. It's in the going to be in the Rice University area. The march is usually like a mile or something, something like that. And they have some speakers afterwards, and that is um, <clears throat> that's quite. Uh, it's a good a good thing. Last year, uh, two or three couples from the church came out, so that's a. Before we begin our time of study this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so we'll make sure we're all walking by the Spirit, necessary, confess any sins, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great joy to be together to fellowship around the teaching of your word and to be reminded of your love for us and your grace and all that you have done for us and provided for us and the fact that uh, you seek for our lives the best and that you are uh, working in our lives through God the Holy Spirit to mature us and to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, that we have a destiny that is beyond this life and beyond this earth that will be to rule and reign with our Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom and then on into eternity. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we're studying this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Part of what we're studying this evening is directly related to the passage. Another part of what we're studying as part of the passage is somewhat a little bit repetitious right now for the congregation because we've had to go over it in some other studies, but sometimes that's necessary because every now and then you hit almost the same teaching, the same doctrine in two different series. But if I left it out of one, because I'm talking to the congregation here, and I only had this happen once before where on a Tuesday night I was teaching something and Thursday night I had to teach the same thing and they were both, because they both came up in two different series and you hear them in a different order than the way a lot of people will hear them who are just listening to book series via the internet. They won't be listening to First uh, or Second Samuel at the same time they're listening to First Peter and hearing the lessons as they come together or Matthew at the same time, so That uh, sometimes presents a little problem. Anyway, we are in our study in 1 Peter 4, and we are looking at verses 5 and 6. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're at 5 and 6, but we're talking about the important teaching of Scripture in relationship to judgment. And that is because as we get into uh, this section of 1 Peter, of course, he's been encouraging believers that. They're they're facing persecution. They're facing those that ridiculed them, that that blasphemed them, that uh, run them down, and and so uh, Peter says in regard to these, uh, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dis- dissipation, speaking evil of you. They're they're ridiculing you and making fun of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That is a reminder that we will all give an account for our lives, but specifically there it's talking about unbelievers. And then in verse 6, it goes on to say, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. So where we are is we stop to talk about these judgments that will come in in history for believers and also for unbelievers. Last time we talked about the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat, and how that is for believers only. That occurs after the rapture. I think it takes place, you know, when we get into heaven, t- there's no such thing as time. There's progression of events, but there's no such thing as time per se. On earth, We know that the tribulation period takes seven years. Now, those time frames are not the same that will affect us in heaven. But from Revelation 4 and 5, we see that the 24 elders who are representatives of the church-age believers serving in the the heavenly temple uh, will have Stephanos crowns. A Stephanos crown is a crown of reward. A Diademos crown is a crown of royalty. So they cast their Stephanos crowns before the throne of God. To have a Stephanos crown, you have to have been rewarded and received your your wreath, which is your Stephanos crown. So that would indicate that by that time, the events of Revelation 4 and 5, the Bema seed has already taken place, but the Son of Man has not taken the scroll from the Father, and the seals have not begun to be unbroken yet, or to be broken yet. So that means that that before the tribulation begins, the bema seat takes place. But in the in terms of human time, it could be in the blinking of an eye; it could just take seconds. Whereas in heaven, it would take the, whatever progression of time it takes to go through the whole process of judging all believers, which will be in a different time frame than that which takes place on earth. So tonight, what I want to look at is the great white throne judgment which is for unbelievers and answering this question why sins are not the issue and we studied this a couple of times in different vantage points in the last few weeks in Matthew but that's really the issue so many people are confused about what happens at the great white throne judgment and even at the Bema seat They're at the Bema seat the point of the um the, the whole illustration of our works are then burned is not to reveal the wood, hay, and straw, but to get rid of it and to reveal the gold, silver, and precious stones. That The point is that God wants to expose what we have done right, not to expose what we have done wrong. At the judgment seat, I mean, at the great white throne judgment, the issue is the works of the unbeliever. And there's confusion on this, so we need to think our way through this a little bit. So there is a passage, 1 uh, Peter four, five, that all will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And that use of that term is a merism. A merism is like day and night, uh, far and wide. It is taking two two opposites and putting them together in a way that makes a a, a universal statement that's all inclusive. So there's nobody that's not included in the category of either the living or the dead. That's everybody. So everybody is going to be judged. But there are different judgments. This is just, I believe, a general statement. Now, I, didn't fi- I thought I fixed this slide, but I didn't catch something. So last week, these, these two panels were all messed up. So I'm just going to put them in here. In the church age, we have the first resurrection, the first resurrection begins with the resurrection of Christ, which we commemorate this coming Sunday on Resurrection, uh, resurrection Day, and then there is the rapture and resurrection of the dead church-age believers. All this is part of what is called the first resurrection. Then there's the tribulation. Uh, halfway through the tribulation, there's the resurrection of the two witnesses, and at the end of the tribulation, there's the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and tribulation saints that were martyred uh, during the tribulation. And so those four events are all part of the first resurrection. That is, the they are resurrected in order. Then the Lord returns at the second coming, and... Well, there has been the Bema seat that took place at the beginning of the tribulation or between the church age and the tribulation. The Lord returns, and then there are several judgments. Uh, The Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. There's a judgment on surviving Gentiles and surviving Jews from the tribulation period called the sheep and the goat judgment. There will be an evaluation of Old Testament saints and there will be an evaluation of tribulation saints, all to determine their roles and responsibilities when they enter into the uh, millennial kingdom. At the end of the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a an insurrection against God. And they will be basically incinerated by fire and brimstone from the throne of heaven, And then there will be a second resurrection, which involves the great white throne judgment. And at that time, Satan is cast into the lake of fire, and all of the unsaved dead are cast into the lake of fire. So the two judgments that we've been talking about, the first one, the Bema seat, and now the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 is the sort of the benchmark passage for the Bema Seat, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's for rewards, not for eternal destiny. So we concluded that there will be an evaluation of every believer's life, that the issue issue isn't sin or salvation, but it is to reward faithfulness. One of the most important passages is 1 Corinthians uh, four four, that says what's required of a steward, that is um, someone who's been given responsibility in the church age, which is every believer, because every believer is in full-time service to the Lord from the moment they're saved. It, what's required of a steward is that they be found faithful. As a pastor in different churches, one of my first—actually, uh, the second church that I was a pastor— I had uh, four leaders in the church who were all uh, entrepreneurs, businessmen, and two of them had consulting businesses where they went into major corporations and helped them define where their strengths and weaknesses were and to establish uh, measurable and quantifiable goals for uh, for the coming year so that they could continue to Optimize their performance, be more efficient, and to achieve their goals and objectives. Unfortunately, I've found many times in Christian ministry, you have people in business who bring that kind of mentality into the church, and they try to measure and quantify the Christian life in the ministry of the church. And we can't do that because it's up to God to build the church, and it's up to God to bring the hearers and it's not up to the pastor to do that and yet we have all these church growth models out there which have produced these mega churches and probably in a lot of cases it has nothing to do with the accuracy of their doctrine or the work of the God the Holy Spirit it has to do with their ability to marshal uh, business uh, skills and to use business plans to achieve high numerical growth and at the at the at the sacrifice of doctrinal accuracy and spiritual growth for the congregation. The two don't go together at all. And uh, you have to, the pastor's job is to t- feed the sheep, John twenty, twenty-one, 21, and the Lord's job is to build the church. And today, pastors think their job is to build the church and that they're going to find Sunday school teachers to somehow feed the sheep. And it's led to a real tragedy. So we have to understand that Our responsibility is to be faithful. Now, we can do certain things that are important, but part of that is just faithful in serving the Lord, how he has given us, and part of the pastor's responsibility is to serve the Lord by feeding the sheep. Third point is that the judgment seat of Christ is only for believers. There will be no unbelievers there. Everyone who is there is saved. They will spend eternity with the Lord, but the judgment seat depends on what. Uh, their role and responsibilities would be. And then fourth, we saw that the judgment seat is described in these sort of cultural terms as an analogy that a Bema seat could refer to a civil court, it could refer to an athletic contest, it could re- was used in, in different ways. In fact, if you go to a synagogue today, uh, it's the term that they use to refer to the uh, podium. It's the Bema so it's a general word for just a raised platform, and this is where the magistrates would, would function. Okay, I'm going to put this back together again for us. So what we're looking at now is this second judgment, which is the great white throne judgment, and that's in Revelation chapter 20, and we'll start at verse about verse 4 or 5. When we come to Revelation chapter 20, this is in the period of a time when Christ is going to establish his kingdom and reign for a thousand years. Revelation 4 says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Those are church age believers. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those are the tribulation saints. So because they reigned with Christ for a thousand years, we know, we can infer from that, that they've been rewarded, even though Revelation doesn't specifically break down when the Old Testament saints received their rewards and when the tribulation saints break down their their or, or receive their rewards. We know that this has occurred because of these statements that that are made. And then in verse five we read, "But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished." This is the first resurrection. So that uh, the 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 first resurrection is all those involves all those who are believers. Now what happens? Is there's going to be a judgment? We'll get to in a minute. And the Great White Throne judgment. The fact that it is great, the adjective that's used there, is used to emphasize the fact of its, uh, the fact that this is the ultimate judgment in history of all mankind, all unbelievers. It is the white represents righteousness in Scripture, represents righteousness and justice. And so it's emphasizing the righteousness of God uh, as the basis for this judgment, and that the judgment emphasizes it's an evaluation. Now, the one who judges is not the Father. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. John 5.29 says that uh, talking about a future judgment, it's all in that passage, Uh, Well, these verses are just talking about general judgment, John 5, 29, Revelation 12, 2. Excuse me, Daniel 12, 2. Let's just skip on. I'll come back to the other in a minute. Um, We'll skip to Revelation 20, verse 7. Slides are in a different order than I'm thinking right now. Um, Revelation 12, 7. Now, when the thousand years had expired, so we've gone up through verse 6, and now we get into the details at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. So the word will be released is a future tense, which emphasizes uh, the reality of that in the future, and that he has been in his prison, which is the abyss that is described in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 3. He is not in the lake of fire the antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire at the end of the tribulation now some people always ask well how do they do that well somehow in the process they get the kind of immortal body that will allow all of the unbelievers to to survive but to experience all of the pain and torments of the lake of fire interesting today did you catch the news item a couple of you did the Pope, who is supposed to be the bastion of Christian orthodoxy, announced that there is no lake of fire. Just thought y'all would like to know that. No lake of fire. That violates all of the doctrine for 2,000 years in biblical Christianity and in the Roman Catholic Church. So it's interesting how they're going to deal with this. That he is Now they're saying that the document this came from was not correctly translated. So... They'll wiggle out of it somehow, but he doesn't, apparently, doesn't want to believe that unbelievers will suffer for eternity. And the reality is that Scripture does teach that, no matter how much we may not quite understand it. So, Satan is released from the abyss for a short time. Now, we don't know how long this time will be. It may be a few months. It may be a couple of years. But what he is going to do is he is going to organize and uh, pull together this rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the millennium. Now, the millennium is not a perfect state. It is more perfect than what we have today. It is, uh, I compare it to The the curse as it probably existed somewhat between the fall and the flood. It's rolled back to some degree. Uh, The lion and the lamb will lie down together. A child will be able to put its hand into a viper's den. You can't do that today or it will be fatal. But that's because of the curse. So that's not going to be true. People will live throughout the millennial kingdom. They'll have lifespans that are in excess of the lifespans of those who, who lived prior to the flood. They will live for the complete thousand-year period. If they're born right at the beginning, they'll live throughout the whole time. And if somebody were to die, Isaiah says, at a hundred years, they will be thought to have died prematurely. They will be thought of as dying as a young person. So, and I think that the purpose of that statement is simply for a comparative, to make a a point that that it's going to be almost impossible for anybody to die young. It's going to be considered extremely rare. Uh, there won't be the kinds of diseases we have today, or things of that nature. But it's not a perfect environment because the people who enter the kingdom, who survive the tribulation, are going to re- retain maintain their mortal bodies with their sin natures, and they're going to have children that have sin natures, and those children will have children, and there'll be multiple generations that are born in this perfect environment that have sin natures. And part of the reason that thing that God is teaching in this, in this dispensation is that the basic problem that man has isn't a problem of environment. It's not a problem of poor government. It's not a problem of poor education. It's not a problem of poverty or economics. The basic problem is our own sin nature. That is the cause of all of these other problems and and, and failures in the world. And what we get in these, they're they're usually referred to as Christian heresies, and that's because they've taken a few ideas of Christianity and really twisted them. Uh, Marxism is one. There's other utopic ideas that way. And the reason they're called Christian is because Christianity is the only uh, religious system, uh, well, let's call it Judeo-Christian religions, and we'll loosely include Islam in that because it's a uh, uh, Judeo-Christian heresy in a way because of its recognition of Abraham and and the Muslims uh, see their descent from Abraham and Ishmael. So Jews Muslims and christians all see history as being linear we're going from one point to an end point where things are going to reach a state of perfection okay for islam that means all the jews and christians will be dead and everybody will submit to allah okay but that's their idea so you get marxism marxism has a linear view of history and other uh, uh, hegelian dialectics has a linear view of history but you get into most pagan systems whether it's buddhism or whether it's greek philosophy that's right john it's all cyclical so christianity anything that comes from the bible that's been influenced by the bible has history as being as being linear and culminating in some sort of perfect utopic environment anything that moves that way has been influenced by christianity now marxism sees the problem as being economic other things like the social justice movement today if you analyze their thinking what they're saying is that the problems are all social If we just, you know, obliterated gender distinctions, if we just uh, obliterated everybody's guns, if we just did away with all these different things, if we just uh, you know, I heard somebody make a comment just a week ago that we should only have a state press, a government sponsored press. I mean, this is basically what the Nazis were doing. And other forms that 's what you come in with is is we have to force everybody to conform uh, by the government, but that 's the idea somehow then we can bring in perfection, and the reason we have we don 't have perfection isn 't because of the press it isn 't because of education it isn 't because of political systems it isn 't because of economics it isn 't because of social distinctions it 's because we 're sinners. And so in, per, in the almost perfect environment, the perfect rule of the Messiah in the millennial kingdom, what we're going to demonstrate is that there's no proof. It's still going to fall apart at the end because they're going to be those who exercise their volition to reject the truth, to reject Jesus as the ruler and to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And then Satan will come along with an alternative explanation, and they'll grab onto it, not because it makes the most sense, but because it gives them a rationale for rejecting the authority of God, which is exactly what people do today. They latch on to Darwinism, they latch on to Marxism, they latch on to socialism, not because they make more sense, but because they have to have an alternative explanation to the Bible. So Satan's released... And then he goes out to deceive the nations. Now, they're they already self-deceived because of their sin nature. So they are ready and waiting for him to come and organize it. They may not know it at the time, but they're, they have been. They have prepared themselves through their own self-deception, and he will deceive the nations. Now, one of the exegetical issues everybody has to decide when you come to passages like this is, is does the word here for nations refer to nations or does it refer to Gentiles? Because in a lot of passages, the same words are translated Gentiles. And I believe that this refers to Gentiles. And the reason I do that without going off into a rabbit trail is that when the new covenant comes, the new covenant is made with Israel and Judah. And God promises that as part of that new covenant, they will, every Jew will know him. Every Jew is given a new heart and no Jews will rebel against him again. Now that may be difficult for us to understand, but that's what keeps cropping up in all of these new covenant passages. So this is really a rebellion that is from the Gentiles, not from the Jewish kingdom, not from the Jews in the millennial kingdom. So they will uh, rebel against God. They're called Gog and Magog as a non-literal term. Now, Gog and Magog in Ezekiel thirty-eight, I think, refers to a specific region, but because uh, and and they lead uh, an attack against Israel during the uh, millennial, I mean, during the tribulation. But here, it's modified by the phrase "the four corners of the earth." Gog and Magog. They're not just these these groups to the north of Israel in the general area between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. They will be gathered together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now, those kinds of phrases are used to describe the descendants of Abraham. They will be like the sand of the sea. It's, it's It's a huge, vast number that can almost not be counted. But it is a finite number, so it could be counted. Now, one of the things that's interesting here is that the Greek word for battle is the word polemos. And polemos has two meanings. The primary meaning is that of a physical, literal battle where you're going to war. The other is a harsh disagreement or conflict that may not involve a military conflict. We get our word polemic from that, which has to do with a debate or an argument. But this is just something that occurred to me uh, in, my <clears throat> in my discussions recently with several people, along with some various musings. But if you, we look back at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4... Actually, this question was, was raised by someone. Isaiah 2.4, this, remember, is the verse that is emblazoned on the front of the UN building. In, a, in, in Isaiah 2.4, it says that uh, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. What does that tell you? That we're going to have complete universal global disarmament at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. All weapons of war will be destroyed, and neither shall they learn war anymore. So there won't be any military academies. Nobody's going to be studying Sun Tzu. Nobody's going to be uh, learning tactics and strategy. They're not going to be going to college and going through ROTC. War is going to be over with. So the question is, how does that work in light of the fact that these are going to Uh, are gathering together for the purpose of battle. A couple of explanations. One is that this could be viewed, their purpose is to uh, oppose the millennial reign of Christ, the perfect reign of Christ. And so that's what they're going to. It's not a physical war, but it it is on the order of a, shall we call it, a 100 million men and women march. Okay, we've had our million-man marches and our million-women marches, so this is going to be 100 million, and they're going to be marching on Jerusalem. Uh, it could be that because Satan knows all about warfare and he knows about all of these uh, various other problems and conflicts, he knows about weaponry, that as part of his deception, he leads people, he instructs people, and teaches them how to make war in the, in the Millennial Kingdom. So that's possible, but that's sort of beside our main point here, so I want to keep going. They go up the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city, which is Jerusalem, and then God has brought this to conclusion in history, and he's just going to stop it. There's no purpose left in allowing unbelievers to rebel, and so he is going to send um, fire from heaven and just incinerate them, and they are that's it. That's the end of Unbelievers, it really is the end of history. And this is going to conclude um, the millennial kingdom. Then the devil, who deceived them now, is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, that's a very harsh verse. Obviously, the Pope doesn't like it because today he said it's not going to exist. But the Bible says it will exist and there will be eternal condemnation. The Bible does not teach annihilationism or any, anything like that, But it does, and it doesn't teach universal salvation either. So this, is, um, this brings us to the end where in verse 11, John says, Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there is no place found for it. So in the judgment of God, What is fleeing from God are the unbelievers. There's no place to hide. It is now, as R.G. Lee put it in his famous saying, "It is now payday. The someday has arrived." Okay, they are being—they will be judged to determine their eternal destiny. In verse twelve, John says, "I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened." So what we're going to see here is the, that there are uh, two books that are open. One ha- is the record of what everyone did in their life, their book of works. The other is the book of life. In uh, Revelation 20, verse, I think it's in verse uh, 3. Earlier it's called the, maybe not, I got to add them reference wrong it's the lamb's book of life but this is a record of all those who were saved and the dead were told another book uh, the books were open and another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books and in verse 13 the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. So, this raises a couple of key questions. Does works include sin? Is it a synonym for sin? Or is it restricted to only good works, that is, morality? Second question, can any unbeliever produce a a neutral morality that is good? Think about that. What we have learned from our studies in Romans 6 is that everybody is born spiritually dead, and they have a sin nature. They are corrupt. They cannot produce anything that is good in the sense of absolute perfection, that is good, that is... Uh, acceptable by the perfect righteousness of God. So whenever an unbeliever does something that is morally good, and the Pharisees and Sadducees did many things that were morally good, whenever they do things that are morally good, they're just relatively good. They are not up to the standard of God's perfect righteousness. And so good works are good only in a relative sense. They are judged according to their works, and that word also has, can have, um, a positive sense of what the believer has done. We're judged at the judgment seat of Christ according to our works, that is according to our production, which is a production of the of God the Holy Spirit. So the word works itself doesn't necessarily mean sin. It doesn't necessarily mean that which is uh, righteously, is righteous and therefore acceptable by the righteousness of God. But it has to be understood in terms of the context. And the context is that none of their works qualify them for heaven. Now, what that means, because sometimes, and I know many of you have heard that this is simply a measurement of their good works. It doesn't say that. It's not qualified. It just said their works. Since they're unbelievers, they never really had good in the sense of truly righteous works. They're just all their works. And the issue at the judgment seat of Christ is do you have what is necessary to enter into heaven? Now, what we have seen is that that there are three basic issues that face every human being. The first issue is the legal penalty for sin. When Adam disobeyed God at the cross, I mean at the, at the garden, when Adam disobeyed God in the garden, he died spiritually. That was the legal penalty of sin. He died spiritually, and all of his descendants are born spiritually dead that legal penalty had to be paid. And what we will see is that that legal penalty was paid at the cross. That's Colossians 2, 12 to 14. We'll go through that in a minute. That legal penalty is paid at the cross for everybody, every human being. But that doesn't make them spiritually alive, and that doesn't make them righteous. Only by belief in Jesus Christ Do we receive the righteousness of Christ and can be declared just? That is the only way we have righteousness. The only way we have life is, again, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are regenerated and we are given new life in him. So while the penalty is paid, that is Godward. But manward, there's the issue of faith in Jesus Christ. So what happens at the judgment seat of Christ, excuse me, at the great white throne judgment, is they're going to be evaluated to see if their works measure up to God's righteous standard. God has an absolute standard of perfect righteousness. The only way we get that is by believing in Jesus Christ, and we receive his righteousness. It's imputed to us, reckoned to us, and on that basis, we're declared righteous. So what happens at the judgment seat of Christ is all their works, that's going to include everything. Because they're unbelievers, it's all produced by the sin nature. It's going to include their morality, their immorality, everything. But the point is, is it going to stack up high enough to to come up to this righteous standard of God? And it doesn't matter whether those are sins or not sins or what they are. It's that whatever they have, the totality of what they have isn't enough to equal the righteousness of God, and so the result is condemnation because they are unrighteous and spiritually dead. The result is that death in Hades, that is those that were dead, those who were in Hades or Sheol in the compartment known as torments, those are cast into the lake of fire, and this is called the second death. This doesn't involve believers, this is only all the unbelievers of all of human history. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. See, those who don't have righteousness, after God looks at all their works in the book of works, he's going to say, well, you don't have righteousness. So let's look in the book of life to see if your name is there. Well, your name's not there. So those, it, this is sort of a repetition in another sense. They're, they don't have the works to be righteous. They don't have life because they didn't trust in Jesus for regeneration. Therefore, they are cast into the lake of fire for eternal punishment. Now, here's a graphic. We have the great white throne judgment. And so the passage says that those who are in the, the dead in Hades are brought before the great white throne judgment. The graphic down here shows the original three components Three sections of Sheol in the Old Testament. There was Paradise. Remember, this is where Lazarus, uh, who was the beggar outside the rich man's house, that Lazarus goes to uh, goes to Paradise. This is where Old Testament saints went before the cross, and it was separated from by a great gulf from the area of torments where the rich man was, and that is where there was. It was analogous to the lake of fire because he's hot, he's burning, he's in pain, he's thirsty, he wants uh, Lazarus to be allowed to dip his finger in the water and put it on his tongue so that he would be refreshed. So this is the place of all unbelieving dead. At, after the resurrection, all of the Old Testament saints who were in paradise, paradise is taken to heaven so that in First Corinthians uh, or Second Corinthians, chapter twelve, Paul is taken to paradise. He's with he's in heaven. So paradise by that time has been moved to heaven. So um, all of the dead in Hades will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, according to John five twenty two. The Father has ded- dedicated or delegated. Excuse me. The Father has delegated all judgment to the Lord Jesus Christ. John five twenty two. He, they will be evaluated on the basis of two things, a complete record of everything they did in life called the, called the book of man's works and whether or not they are in the Lamb's book of life. See, those are those two issues. When I talk about three problems that man has, there's a legal problem, there's a life problem, there's a righteousness problem. The life problem means they have to be regenerated because they're born spiritually dead That problem has to be resolved experientially. When we believe in Jesus, we receive life in our name is now there's a disagreement. Some people say everybody's name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But if you don't believe your name is blotted out, others take the view that when you believe your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, I'm not taking a position on that. Um, But only believers names are in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, Also, that's in Revelation 21-27. Also in Revelation 20-15, it's just called the book of life. This is the same thing. So, on the basis of that, they're evaluated. If their name is not found in the book of life, then they are sent to the lake of fire. The basis for for righteousness. God has perfect righteousness. We are... We have relative righteousness, minus R. Jesus Christ had perfect righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. This righteousness, is minus R, may look really, really good in comparison to 99% of human beings. But when it's compared to God's perfect righteousness, we fall short. Christ bore our sins on the tree. As we've studied many times in Matthew recently, He, that is God the Father, made Him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Our sins are imputed to Jesus Christ. He's judicially separated from the Father, which means He dies spiritually on the cross, and He pays the penalty of our sins so that, with the result that, we might be become the righteousness of God in him. That is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. So our sins go to Christ on the cross, and when we trust in him, his righteousness is imputed to us, and God declares us to be righteous. That's what is meant by justification by faith alone. We are justified not by anything that we've done, but because we have received the righteousness of Christ. And so God looks at us in terms of that perfect righteousness. As a result of that, he blesses us, not because of what we do, but because of who we are in Christ. In Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Ephesians 1.3. Now, the big question that comes up for a lot of people is just, well, what exactly are we condemned for or are the unbelievers condemned for at the great white throne judgment? Are they condemned for their sin or are they condemned because of something else? The idea is to understand what is it that was paid for at the cross. So this takes us back to our study on Colossians two thirteen and 14. So I want to review this. The more I study this, in fact, I had an email from someone yesterday, and they were asking me to review. uh, He was having a discussion with somebody in his church out in California, and they were having a significant disagreement over the nature of the gospel. They were having a significant disagreement over dispensationalism versus covenant theology. There were a lot of issues at play here, and there was one paragraph in there where this person had... Uh, said rather um, indignantly that his view of forgiveness was not biblical. It used three or four sentences to state that. And I keep coming back to this passage again and again and how foundational it is and how few people, in my experience, have really worked their way through Colossians uh, 2, 12 to 14, but specifically 13 and 14. And I pointed this out before, ran across this quote from uh, C.F.D. Mule, Mule uh, Charles Francis Digby Mule, who always wrote uh, went by his uh, initials, was a Greek scholar of the Anglican Church in the 19th century. He was one of the great scholars. He was born to missionary parents in, in Shanghai, and he wrote several commentaries, and one of those was on uh, on Colossians. And at the beginning of this section, which starts in the fourth verse of chapter 2 and goes to the fourth verse of chapter 3, he says this section contains one of the most important of St. Paul's descriptions of what is achieved by the death of Christ and one of his most emphatic reiterations of the theme of the incorporation of believers, and that should be into the body of Christ. I'm going to... Move that picture so that it is, uh, I keep running into this on this slide, so we've got to get this fixed. There we go. Emphatic reiterations of the theme of the incorporation of believers in Christ. This is one of the things that is not as well taught today as it has been in some previous generations, and it's usually associated more with dispensationalists than it is with others in Lutheran, Roman Catholic, or um, covenant, the, uh, covenant theology. So what we have in Christ is incredible, and it's really explained best in Colossians and in Ephesians. And I've gone through Colossians, and when we finish uh, Matthew, I think uh, on Sunday morning we'll start into a study of Ephesians. But what Mool recognizes here is how critical it is to understand this ch- section of Scripture. There are probably a dozen chapters in Scripture that are just foundational to understanding either salvation or the spiritual life, and this is one of those great chapters. Now, the whole section starts. Let's turn there in Colossians chapter two. The whole section starts here in in verse eleven. I'm not going to go all the way take us all the way back to um, verse four, but I think we'll get the main idea just by picking up the context in in two eleven. we read, and in him, there's that important phrase, in him, what we have in Jesus Christ that is common to every believer, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, there's a word there that is used three times in that verse, circumcision. Why is this so important? It's because the, the the legalists, also known as the Judaizers, were coming along behind Paul. They'd done this in Galatians. They were doing this throughout this area of of central and western uh, uh, Turkey, which is back then was the province of Asia, a Roman province. And they're talking that there has to be this physical circumcision in order to enter into all of the blessings. They're confusing the Mosaic covenant, and uh, talking is that that continues into the uh, present church age. And so that's that's their emphasis. And what Paul goes back to, uh, as we'll see here in just a minute, is in Deuteronomy there is the clear statement that there is a circumcision that is not of the flesh. There is a spiritual circumcision that is of the heart. And that is critical to experience the spiritual life that God has for us. And it is a picture of somehow the removal or limitation of the power of the sin nature. So that's what he's talking about here. And that this is illustrated in baptism, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So this is pictured in baptism. When baptism, you take somebody, you immerse them in water. That is a picture of death. When they are brought out of the water, they are being brought into newness of life. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 3, also here. So we're, it, it signifies our new life in Christ. And then he goes on and talks about what happens in verse 13. He says, "...when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh." Now, in Ephesians, he says, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here it's in your sins uh, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Sins in Ephesians, uncircumcision of the flesh here in Colossians. What? Why the change of terms? Because he's dealing with this other issue of circumcision as a problem, or, or this, this idea that you have to be circumcised physically. Uh, and that was a problem in, in Colossians. So what he says here is that at that time that we're born, we're dead in our transgressions, we're dead in our sins, we're dead in uncircumcision of the flesh, and something has to change that for us to have life. And so he then you get the main verb, Everything in colossians two thirteen is is a participle up to this point. he made you alive that 's what he 's talking about here is how we're we 're made alive, and this is related to forgiveness it 's related to forgiveness, and we have a participle here uh, having forgiven, and we have to decide what the Nuance what the meaning of that participle is because it's clearly an adverbial participle, but there's about nine different meanings of an adverbial participle. The best way to understand it is because it's a causal participle, and so he made you alive because you were forgiven. Okay, Um, and it that forgiveness has a temporal aspect to it because it's in the aorist tense, the verb's in the aorist tense and that means that the forgiveness occurs before the action of the main verb. I'll go over that again. That's that's really this is why grammar is so important in breaking down some of these complex sentences that Paul has. So what he's basically saying here is God is able to regenerate us because he had pro- had had already forgiven us. There's a natu- there's a logical order in the way things related to salvation have to take place. First of all, the sin penalty has to be taken care of. That's taken care of at the cross. Because that's been taken care of at the cross, now God is free to uh, regenerate us into Christ. It's, and there are dimensions to regeneration in the church age that are different from regeneration in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 2, 10, 16 was the, uh, verse I was mentioning earlier where, uh, Moses says, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff necked no longer. And there that circumcision of the heart is really talking about, um, progressive sanctification. It is realizing that, that this, that and dealing with the sin nature and cutting off its power, um, I'm going to go ahead and just for sake of time, skip those next slides. So let's get the order here. You being dead or when you were dead, it's a present active participle. So that takes place at about the same time as the action of the verb. And he says, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. That is what happened when we trusted Christ as Savior. And then you have that participle, because you were forgiven of all trespasses. Now, the question we need to ask is, when were we forgiven of all trespasses? Now, for most Christians, they think, well, that happened when I trusted in Jesus. Well, in one sense of forgiveness, that's true. But this is talking about a different sense of forgiveness. And when we conclude, I'll remind you of the four different ways forgiveness is used in the New Testament. So we're made alive together with Him. And this is parallels Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, even though we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with Him and seated us with Him at the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what happens in regeneration in the church age is it's not only simply being made spiritually alive, which is what happened in the Old Testament but it has an additional dimension in that we are spiritually put into Christ and we are raised with him uh, to seated with him in the heavenly places. That is our new identity in Christ. It goes far beyond anything that any old Testament believer uh, ever experienced. So that brings us back to the question that I mentioned a minute ago, which is what is the relationship between forgiveness and being made alive? So, We have to look at the word for forgiveness. Two words for forgiveness show up in the Old Testament. Now, why is this important? It's important, let's take it back, because what are those unbelievers being judged for at the great white throne judgment? What's going on there? Okay, so this is a background for understanding that. We've made alive together because we have already been forgiven of all of our sins. Now, when does that take place? If you look at the end of verse 14, it tells you it's at the cross. It's not when we're saved. We'll get, we'll get to that again in a minute. So this word charizmi is really interesting because it has the idea of giving something freely or graciously. It's from the root meaning grace, charis. Uh, it also means to cancel a sum of money or debt that is owed. That's in Luke seven forty-two. Jesus talks about two men who owe owe somebody. One owes him five hundred dollars. One owes him fifty dollars, and neither can pay it. And so he charismates. He he forgives the debt. That's what that word means. It means to forgive a debt and to cancel a debt. And in this case, debt is the sin penalty that we owe that that is personal. Not the objective sin penalty Jesus pays for on the cross, but the experience uh, that we have. Excuse me, let me rephrase that. It is the sin penalty that we all have. That is assigned because of Adam's original sin. So we are forgiven of all trespasses. It's canceled out. It's a debt term, paid in full. That's why Jesus is paid in full at the... Uh, just before he dies physically on the cross. And the participle there has that sense of because he had already forgiven or canceled the sin. That's the best way to think about it. When Jesus says to, tell us to die on the cross, it is finished, what he is saying is paid in full, an economic term, which means the debt is canceled. For everybody, Jesus pays the legal penalty. But that doesn't make anybody spiritually alive, and it doesn't make anybody righteous. It just frees God, because His justice and righteousness are satisfied, to be able to save those who believe. So, in sum, what this is saying is, when you were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him because He canceled all the legal guilt of your trespasses. See that's what I call forensic forgiveness. Forensic has to do with what happens in a courtroom. Okay? Forensic means what has to what happens legally in a courtroom. It doesn't change your spiritual the fact that you're spiritually dead, you're born spiritually dead. It doesn't change the fact that you're unrighteous. There's four categories of forgiveness. The first is forgiveness directed by uh, directed toward God where the justice of God cancels the debt of sin. That's the legal penalty for all human beings. Second, we are forgiven positionally in Christ when we believe the gospel. When we believe in Christ and we receive his righteousness, then there's a realization of that forgiveness to the individual. The first one is directed to God's righteousness. The second one is directed to the individual who believes in Christ. Third, we have experiential forgiveness whenever we sin and that fellowship with God is broken. We confess sin. He forgives us our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then fourth, we have relational forgiveness when we are to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. The verb there is charizomai, to graciously forgive people, to graciously cancel out what they have done because of what God, for Christ's sake, has done for us. That's that second. These are two verbs that we have for forgiveness. Both mean to let go, to cancel, to remit. Both of them are used in economic circumstances, and they have that idea of canceling uh, canceling the debt. Uh, Afiemi emphasizes the act of forgiveness, whereas charizomai, Emphasizes the attitude of forgiveness. So we have these passages where Jesus at the at the Last Supper says, "This is my the blood of my covenant." Excuse me. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission or for the forgiveness of sin. It's that death on the cross that cancels the sin. That's why he says to die. Hebrews nine twenty two. According to the law, almost all things are purified by blood and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So again Luke 7:42 is a situation where the woman is washing Jesus feet and Jesus teaches Simon uh, the pharisee about that parable one person owes 500 one person owes 50 but Jesus but but the landowner uh cancels both debts. Now the next verse is critical to understand because what it it starts off with a participle in the Greek about canceling the certificate of debt, and it's related to explaining this participle. Because we're made alive together, God is able to regenerate us because He's already forgiven us. When did He do that? By it's either means or it can be when. Uh, we could translate because He already forgave us by canceling out the certificate of debt, or he forgave us when he canceled out the certificate of debt. But when he canceled out the the certificate of debt is then going to be defined as having taken place... Let me advance to the next slide. As having taken place... um, when that's canceled at the cross. At the end, it says, having nailed it to the cross. It's a historical event. It's not having nailed it to the cross. It doesn't say he canceled it out when you believed in Jesus. He says he canceled out the certificate of debt, having nailed it to the cross. And that word for cancel means to wipe away, blot out, erase something, eradicate it, remove it. The debt's gone. goes back to the Old Testament idea of blotting out our iniquities in Psalm nine, which is talking about forgiveness, or Isaiah 43.25, blotting out our transgressions. That's what God does. He erases those. Peter used that same language in uh, Acts 3.19. And there it's talking about what happens when we, when we believe, when we turn to God, then those sins are forgiven. It's blotted out again. So this is the idea. There's a certificate of debt, a handwriting. It's talking about a legal document that's set against us, and it's hostile to us, and it has to be uh, dealt with. How does Go- Let me skip ahead here. How is it handled? God takes it out of the way. It is, again, it's grammar. Perfect tense means it's a completed action. It's not something that's ongoing. That would be pre- have to be present tense. Perfect means he took it out of the way in the past. It's a completed action. He took it out of the way when he nailed it to the cross. So the great thing from this is that that in a legal sense, sin's not the issue anymore between man and God. Our spiritual death is, our lack of righteousness is, But the sin penalty incurred by Adam is not because it was taken out of the way at the cross. That's what Christ did. That's what it means when it says he paid for our sins. They're paid for. They're eradicated. That means that sin is not the issue at salvation. Spiritual death is you need to help people understand they're spiritually dead and lost. They don't have life and they don't have righteousness. But you don't browbeat them about all the sins in their life because those are paid for it doesn't mean that the sin penalty or their spiritual death is not is ignored but that that's not the focal point that happens in a lot of evangelism you have to make sure they understand they have to repent for all their sins that's not biblical the third point is that the focal point is grace and the emphasis is on that forgiveness that Christ provided at the cross so that for the point of application when we're proclaiming the gospel is is what is taught in Acts. It's the gospel of forgiveness of sins. It's realized. Therefore, we have reconciliation. So this is why when we look at the great white throne judgment, the issue isn't God bringing up everybody's sin because sin's not the issue. The issue is, number one, they don't have works that will produce perfect righteousness. So they fall short of God's righteousness. And second, because they didn't believe in Christ, it's uh, their name's not in the Lamb's book of life. John three eighteen says, he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. Notice it doesn't say, but he who has sinned or committed these certain sins or those sins. It says, because he believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God that's the issue is faith in Jesus Christ at which point we have eternal life and we receive the perfect righteousness of Christ so next time we'll come back and move to the next verse 1 Peter 4 6 talking about this this whole issue of um, in what sense is this talking about the gospel being preached to those who are dead Father we thank you for this time to study your word this evening and to go through these passages and and come to grips with the fact that 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 Christ fully paid for sin at the cross so that sin is not the issue. Doesn't justify sin in our life. It doesn't um it doesn't give us a license to sin or anything like that, but that the legal penalty is paid for. So that the issue now is not what we how we failed or where we sinned. The issue is, do we believe in Jesus Christ or not? That that is the issue of salvation. As Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you'll help us to understand these things that we might be better witnesses and be better able to articulate the wonderful glories of our Lord's death on the cross and what it provides for those who are dead in sin. In Christ's name we pray, pray, amen.